Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for all the gifts that you give us and we pray that you would bless our time together in the study of your word and in the study of the doctrine of sanctification, that you would edify us and uh, help us to better understand your son and what he did for us and what he still does for us by sending us your spirit. We pray this through your Son, the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so talking about living as Lutherans, last week we talked about this idea of spirituality and what that looks like as, as Lutherans and uh, specifically connecting that to the Holy Spirit and to receiving that spirit in baptism. This week, we're going to start up in chapter 31 of the book, uh, page 260, if you're following along. And we're going uh, to just broadly kind of look at this topic of um, what we will call to uh, connect these things together, uh, sanctification. Now, the word sanctification, right, similar, we've talked before about justification. So the word justification comes from the word just, right, which means uh, righteousness, right, or rightness, right, that the to be justified is to be made right with God. Or if you have justified margins on a page, right, they're uh, right alongside one another. They're right on both sides. Everything's equal. <laughs> Okay, so that's justification to be made right with God, and that happens by faith. Sanctification is another thing that uh, to be made, right? So to be made right is justification. Uh, Ification, right, is to be made. Sanctification is to be made sancti, which means holy, right? So sanctification is... uh, to be made holy. That's what sanctification means. Now, holiness is also connected to the spirit and to baptism. Holiness is this idea that we get in scripture of uh, really who is God, right? So what's the Sunday school answer if I were to ask you what is holy? Well, Jesus, yes. Jesus is holy. Okay, uh, a little bit like middle school level Sunday school answer. Um, what is holy? Does anyone know? To be set apart. Has anyone heard that before? All right, set apart. Okay, so holiness is to be set apart. Uh, but really that is to say um, on a cosmic level, what is the only thing that's set apart is God, right? Because we have uh, right creator and Everything else is creation, right? There's there, there's no other categories of what things are, or what what exists other than creator and creation. And ultimately, there's only one creator, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Triune God, and everything else that exists is creation, right? And so the creator is, by definition, the Holy One, right? So this is why we say... 
oh, holy God, holy almighty God, right? Um, because that is who he is. Now, what is amazing is that as creation, God makes man in his own image, in the creator's image, right? And in other words, he is inviting us to partake in his holiness, right? He's inviting us to take part in his being set apart, right? He makes us in his own image, right? And that is to say, um, well, let's add a little bit of something to this idea of holiness that what part of what makes him set apart, part of what sets him apart is that he is perfect in every way, right? Um, so this idea of perfection, and sometimes you even get um, this translation in the Bible of, of holy as perfection. Now, when we think of perfection, we think of like without blemish um, or kind of like, especially in a moral sense, like doesn't make mistakes. That's partly the case, but really when we talk about this idea of holiness as perfection, um, we're talking about this idea of like fullness, right? That, that something is fully what it is meant to be, right? That it is complete, um, that it's reached its end goal, right? Um, there's this other idea in scripture of uh, a word. I know I'm giving you lots of words, but this is kind of trying to wrap our minds around what we're talking about. There's this word, uh, telos, in the Greek, um, which is the idea of finishing or completion. Um, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, he says a uh, participle version of this, uh, telestai, right? It is finished, right? Um, and so uh, the, the idea here is that something is full. It's reached its telos. It's reached its end. It's complete. Right. And so when God invites us to be in his own image, he's inviting us to this perfection, this fullness, this reaching our end. Right. This being made holy in him, which um, means that we are the the humans, the man, the mankind that he created us to be. Right. And obviously, uh, so to back up a little bit. Sin gets in the way of this, right? Um, sin uh, corrupts holiness, right? Sin uh, makes us unable to attain perfection. It makes us not full, right? It blocks us from reaching our end goal. It gets in the way of this process, Right, uh, sin separates us. Right, it it tries to separate us from God. Right, it 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 it's this image that we're made in. Right, it it breaks it up. Right, so when sin does that, that's why we need first of all why we need to be justified, why we need to be made right with God. But it doesn't end there. Right, so justification means that we're no longer separated from God. Uh, but it does not necessarily mean that we have obtained the end of sanctification. It does not necessarily mean 
that we've attained then. And in fact, I'll just tell you right now, you will not attain complete sanctification until you die and go to be with Christ. Right? On this side of heaven, our sanctification is never complete. Right? Our sanctification, our being made holy, is never fully complete. We are never perfectly holy. But let's kind of put this on a timeline. All right, okay, so say, um, you know, baby's born. Okay, so we'll use Everett as an example. Okay, so baby's born 124-24. And, you know, let's say he's baptized in a couple weeks. So sometime in February he's baptized, right? And, and he's justified, right? He has faith in Jesus. We've been praying for Everett. He, our Lord has heard our prayers. He's baptized. His sins are washed away. And let's just assume Everett holds on to this faith for the rest of his life, right? And he lives to be uh, 92 years old, right, at some point. And he, and he dies and passes away with, uh, with faith and, and lives a very full life and has lots of grandchildren of his own, right? Okay. So Everett lives a very good, faithful life. Okay. This is where he's justified, right? At his baptism, or let's let's just say that. Now we could talk about how okay he already has maybe he already has saving faith, and we you know we could get into the weeds of all that. But let's just say okay once once he's baptized, we know for a fact he's justified, and then he maintains that faith the rest of his life. Okay, that's fantastic. The majority of his life, right, is not a life purely of justification, right? In fact, the justification only really happens once when he comes to faith in Jesus, right? Um, now, we assume that's probably actually in the womb, but let's just, again, take baptism as a marker of that. The majority of his life is sanctification. Sanctification is what follows after justification. So once someone is justified, once someone comes to faith in Jesus, believes on Jesus Christ for their salvation of their sins, their life of faith after that, yes, it, it remembers the justification. It doesn't forget Jesus died on the cross for my sins, right? And in some ways that the gifts of that justification in the forgiveness of sins, say in absolution, in the Lord's Supper, right, in, uh, the, in prayer, continue to come back again and again and again. So that justification, it's enduring, right? We remember the baptism. The baptism also stays with us. But primarily what's going on in the, the life of the Christian, in the heart of the Christian, in the, what we call the Christian life, right? So a lot of what we're talking about here is living as Lutherans, right? The um, Christian life. If you go to a... Uh, if you go to CPH or to Amazon and you're looking for some from some Christian books, right, and you want to know um, better how to live as a Christian, right, you look at the Christian life section, right? That's kind of what we're talking about with sanctification. Most of life is sanctification, right? And um, the sanctification is the process, again, of being made holy, right? Another word we could use to talk about this is the idea of growth, 
right? So I just want to kind of set that up because I think in the Lutheran church, we have a little bit of a weakness in that our history in the Reformation, which we just you know covered Reformation history um, as the kind of prior section to this, is a lot of stuff about justification, right? Because that's what the Roman Catholics, late medieval Roman Catholics, got really wrong was justification, right? They believed that we were saved by works, not by faith. And so Lutherans have for a long time, um, and I, we probably never won't because that's just who we are, focused on this idea of justification in our theology, right? And that's good, right? Because justification is super important. That said, sometimes we don't talk as much about sanctification. And when we start talking about growth in the Christian life and spirituality and being made more holy and more perfect and more full and pressing on toward the goal, we get a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that's kind of a bad thing, right? I think Lutherans should be more comfortable. And if you read uh, older Lutherans in theology, um, you you can see this has waxed and waned throughout history. But um, I think because of our history, we're at a little bit of a weakness to underappreciate sanctification because we're afraid that if we start talking too much about good works, we might fall back into works righteousness, right? And and of course we don't want to do that. But um, I was actually I was just listening to this podcast today, and um, the the guy made a really good point. He was actually talking about this exact thing. And I don't know if you've ever heard a pastor. And I used to say this, so I I I'm repenting now. But um, I this this phrase that sometimes you get heard here thrown around in Lutheran theology. Um, to err on the side of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Have you heard this? Mm-hmm. That's a terrible phrase. Um, and I, like I said, I used to use it, right? But this is terrible because you know what we should do? We should not err, right? Um, this is the point the guy made on the podcast I was listening to. He was like, you don't have, and you, God's word is true. And God's word is accurate. You should never err, right? Now, of course, you you will err, right? We all err. We all, um, you know, mess up in our theology sometimes. But we shouldn't throw around this. Oh well, I'm erring on the side of justification and forgiveness, um, just in case I so that I don't fall into works righteousness. The better answer is to say, no, we don't err, and we hold the thing's intention, right? It's the funeral home. I forgot to turn my phone on silent. Okay. Uh, they'll be fine. They can wait. All right. Um, the better thing is to – let me make sure my recording's still going. Okay, we're good. No. Yeah, no, 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 it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, she, she could wait. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. No. No, it's the 
It is the funeral home lady. Um, um, the better thing is to do is to not err and to say, yes, we're justified by faith alone through grace alone. We're not saved by works, but also good works and growth in sanctification and growth in the Holy Spirit also still matter, right? And that if we're in a situation where we're worried about um, a situation where there, there's a kind of a decision between um, leaning towards forgiveness and mercy or leaning towards um, good works and sanctification, it's our job to figure out what the right thing is, not to just say, oh, well, we'll just lean on the side of forgiveness because that's easier, right? It's always easier to say, oh, well, God will have mercy, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, sometimes that's not true. Yeah, Marsha. Okay. So when you hear people say uh, they have a decision to make and they say, well, I'd rather believe than not believe because at the end of the, my life, you know. Yeah, so this isn't about – it's not about believing and not believing. So let me give a concrete example of when people use this phrase. So people will use this phrase um, kind of in like harder pastoral decisions, I, I see it. So like um, – so I'll, I'll give you a situation. So say um, there's a person who passes away that's maybe – Either like a former member of the congregation that you know was delinquent and then got removed from the rolls and um, then uh, you know passed away and and then the family comes and is like, hey, can we do the church funeral? Um, or even just someone who's like a family member of a member or something. Um, but it's pretty obvious that the faith of the person was in question. Right, that it was not clear whether or not they were a believer or an unbeliever. Um, and I've heard people say in those kinds of situations, now that's just one example, there's other examples too. Well, we should just err on the side of the gospel and do it like a Christian funeral. And I would say, no, you should do the more difficult thing, but the right thing, and certainly have a funeral, that's fine. But the pastor should be very careful in crafting the language of that sermon and in making sure that the prayers are, are clear and everything that we don't know, right? Now, to give whatever comfort you can to encourage people in their faith and in the resurrection that they hold on to, um, but to basically be clear that you know we don't know if this person's in heaven or hell. Now, that sounds hard, right? And what's a lot easier is to say, well, I'm just going to err on the side of the gospel, right? But that's not good theology, and that's not pleasing to Jesus, right? Um, what's pleasing to Jesus is honesty and and splitting, not splitting the difference, right? Um, I haven't read this book, by the way, but it's becoming very popular. I, maybe I should read it, but... Um, there's this uh, book that's that's getting kind of popular by, and I think this is the basic idea actually. Uh, some like former very successful hostage negotiator, and it's called Never Split the Difference. And I think the basic idea there is that 
when you're facing difficult decisions um, and hard situations, you need to be extremely clear with your language and not um, just like make assumptions or err on one side of things or split the difference on things. Like that you should actually go to the work to, to be extremely clear. So um, anyway, the... This is like I said. I I'm I'm probably playing a little too much inside baseball here as as far as Lutheran theology goes, um, but there's there is this kind of problem I think within our history that we focus so much on justification and that we're saved by faith alone that that we're afraid to talk about sanctification right or things that we need to do. Um, in fact, I'll give you another example. I just saw this argument on Facebook um, that, you know, the, the verse in Acts, uh, I think it's in Acts 10, around verse, th- I want to say like 1031 sticks out in my head. Um, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? I actually saw a Lutheran pastor, um, there was a, it was like an image of a boat with a, um, person throwing a life, what's that called? A tube, life, yeah, life preserver, whatever, out to the water, and then um, and there was a person drowning, and the water said sin on it. They were drowning in sin, and the life preserver said, um, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved." There's a quote from the Bible, right? And um, the the person commenting that's a Lutheran pastor was saying this is a bad image of salvation because dead men can't swim, which his point, which has some validity, is that the scriptures do present us as dead in our trespasses, unable to save ourselves. God has to save us, right? But the, the issue is that if you just constantly take that so far that the person that you're basically saying like no one should ever do anything because we're totally dependent on God and we're, we can't even grab hold of the life vest, right, when it, the gospel is presented to us. It's just a little ridiculous, right? Like the image is fine because belief is something that we partake in, Right? Like Jesus does make us alive, but he makes us alive to grab hold of the life vest and, and to believe on him. And then even past that, which gets into sanctification, um, to actually strive to love God and to love our neighbor, right? Um, the best that we can. And we're doing that with a new heart, right? With a new soul. And that's been made alive in Christ. And, um, we're so worried sometimes about making it seem like we're doing good works or we're um, doing something that is earning our salvation. We're so worried about wor- this idea of works righteousness that um, we forget uh, that like the Bible does speak in terms of, of us doing things, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess just to, to wrap that up um, maybe a little bit easier – 
to understand is that if we think about that image of a new heart, right? So think about Ezekiel, which we've been going on Sunday mornings, um, that the heart of stone gets turned into a heart of flesh at the justification. What does a new heart do? It beats, it lives, right? As Christians, we walk, right? So um, actually what I want to do is I want to read a passage from, uh, it's our, our epistle reading for this Sunday, and it's uh, actually a great sanctification passage. It's uh, from 1 Corinthians uh, 9 and 10. It's the end of 1 Corinthians 9. And actually, I, it, I, I'm only going to read part of the what's our uh, epistle this Sunday, but just the end of 1 Corinthians 9, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, starting there. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Okay, so what Paul says there is, look, imagine that you're runners in a race, right? He's talking to Christians here. He's talking to the Christian church. He says, imagine you guys are runners in a race, right? Um, And he uses this, this is called the athletic metaphor. He uses this a number of places. Um, but if runners are running in a race, right, in a in a stadium, in a, a stadium, um, this is a old like what you know the Greco-Roman, you know, kind of Olympic idea here. Um, they're running to receive a prize, right? And he says, run in such a way to win the prize, right? In other words, if the ra- the life of faith is a race, right, and we're gonna get a crown at the end. Right, just like in the Olympics, right? They were crowned with the with the crown, right? Um, if we're gonna get a crown at the end of our life, right, the crown of life, which our King has prepared for us in heaven, then we should run as if we're actually trying to attain that goal, right? We shouldn't run, he says, as one. Um, he says they do it to receive a perishable crown, right? A crown that's gonna pass away. We do it to receive an imperishable crown. So it's an even better prize than athletes get, right? And so he says, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly, like kind of just whatever. I'm just in the race. I'm just going to kind of jog, right? I'm like, I'm here. That's what matters. Um, He says, I do not run aimlessly or box like one beating the air, right? Which is pointless and a waste of energy, right? Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control. And what he's uh, talking about there is that... um, what, what athletes do, right, um, this is what he said in verse 25, now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything, right? And you, so you can think about this, and I, I, I like to use this during Lent especially, is that um, athletes, right, they don't just work hard at practice, right? Real professional athletes, what do they do? They make sure that they sleep good every night. They make sure that they eat good breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Right, and they work hard at practice, and then the outside of practice of the actual just sport, right? They're probably lifting weights and and 
and doing cardio on the on the side as well, right? There's conditioning as well. So there's all these aspects in an athlete's life where they have to exercise self-control. And it's not just the one little like the one literal thing that they do. So say they're a boxer, right? It's not just working on the jabs and the crosses and the underhooks and the hooks, right? It's um, everything, right? It's the strength training, it's the cardio, it's the uh, the nutrition, the sleep, all of it, right? Making sure that they're not going out partying, making sure that they're not getting you know drunk with friends, like all of it. And Paul says that's like our Christian life. Like our Christian life is not just Sunday mornings, right? It's not just when we're taking the Lord's Supper or when we're listening to a sermon. Our Christian life is exercising self-control in all of our life, right? And we're going to talk about what that is that we're kind of building up to here. But um, this is uh, maybe a good idea to, to think about sanctification is that if you think about the majority of our, our, our life as Christians being a life of sanctification, a life of being made holy, a life of running this race, that it's a race that we should run um, seriously, right? And that we need to take seriously. Not that um, God's going to do it for us, right? God will help us, right? And we can't do it without God. And this gets us back to the Holy Spirit, right? We need the Holy Spirit, right? This is why it's called the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit to help make us holy. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us. We need the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts, to enliven our hearts, to make us alive, to do this. But we, us, our persons, right? Like not just some, not just the spirit within me, but the spirit within me and me cooperating with that spirit, right? Um, we cooperate with God to do good, right? And to be sanctified. Okay, so what is this um, actually look like, right? Well, it boils down um, to if we think about uh, a distinction that we've talked about before, um, law and gospel, right? Now, I think law and gospel is – we've talked a, a more in detail about what that is before. But if we think about kind of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, the good news – as um, this this is very simplistic, and I, I don't want to, I almost don't want to say this because I think it's overly simplistic. But if we think about the gospel as kind of what's happening in justification, right? That we're receiving the the gifts of the good news of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. If we kind of think of that as the gospel, then sanctification is striving to follow God's law. Right? The law has uh, nothing to do with justification. Right, The law cannot save us. We cannot save ourselves by fulfilling the law. But when we are being sanctified, when we're being made holy, we are striving to follow God's law. Right, And what is, what is the law? Right, The law boils down to one thing, and that is love. And if you want to split it up a little more, love God. And love neighbor, right? And if you want to split that up a little more, you can think about commandments one through three to love God, and commandments four through ten to love your neighbor. 
So you're saying that's law, not gospel? I always thought gospel was the law. Well, law was Ten Commandments. So this, um, again, these are very overly simplistic ways to put it, but um, the gospel is God's love for us. The law is what God gives us to love. It's our love for God and our love for our neighbor, right? The gospel does have to do with love in that, in the sense that it's God's uh, love toward us. But love, in uh, in terms of the kind of Christian virtue, is what defines um, what is God's law, right? So if the, the ultimate fulfilling of God's law, or we could say law is also God's will, right? What does God will for us to do? What does he want for us to do? He wants us to love, right? And true love is uh, the fulfilling of the law, right? Um, and then he reveals that to us uh, throughout his scriptures in specifically, um, very helpfully in the Ten Commandments, but Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments as just love God and love your neighbor, right? So I always describe the uh, Ten Commandments as these like diving boards, right? If you remember this, um, where you have a command, right? So you shall have no other gods before me. That is a... Um, diving board uh, off of which when we dive off of it, we can see all the ways in which we need to uphold God um, that we love, fear, and trust in him above all things, right? And that we we can see that as a diving board in which we are looking out for all the di- different idols that we might have in our life. Or if we think about the fifth commandment, right? So you shall not murder, that's kind of a diving board in which we can think about all the ways in which we love our neighbor in their body, right? Um, that we help and support our neighbor in their bodily needs and we don't harm them in their body, right? So it's not just specifically about not unjustly killing someone. It is about that, but it's about much more than that. And that much more is how, is how we love our neighbor in that way. So um, hopefully that kind of makes sense. Okay, so y'all are, pastors are kind of, when they lay out their sermon, aren't they supposed to talk about the law first and then always end with the gospel so you don't leave um, feeling depressed or, you know, all I've done So I don't, so that is, that idea of starting with the law and ending with the gospel in a sermon, we did talk about this a while back. I don't know, maybe this will sound familiar, but um, without getting too much into the weeds, although I probably will a little bit, that idea um, comes from a preaching textbook um, from the 20th century. I can't remember when it was published exactly, um, but an old professor at the St. Louis Seminary called uh, named Richard Kemmerer, and his the way he taught students to write sermons was um, this method called goal malady means. And basically with any text, what you did is you would say what the end goal is supposed to be. Um, so 
I'll take the um, the gospel text for this upcoming Sunday is the labors in the vineyard, right? Mm-hmm. And that the text, uh, the this is the parable where there's people who are called at the the first, third, yeah, ninth, yeah, and yeah, eleventh yeah, hour, right the but then everyone gets a denarius, right? Okay, so the goal would be something like um, we should all thankfully receive God's grace. Okay. The malady is what's wrong with you that you don't do the goal, right? So um, you're because you're sinful, you you begrudge Jesus' generosity. You think you deserve more because you've been here longer, whatever, right? Then the means is the means by which Jesus has saved you, so that you're, he's healed your malady and that you can reach the goal anyway. Right, so um, Jesus died on the cross uh, for the sin of um, covetousness, and therefore uh, you'll receive the grace anyway because he gives everyone the denarius, right? Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad sermon or that it's a wrong sermon, um, but you've probably heard a lot of sermons like that, right, that are... Um, basically, um, the, the goal might not even be right up at front, but just malady and versus means, right? So, um, like you're a poor, miserable sinner, Jesus died for you, right? Like that's basically the structure of the sermon. And, and I even sometimes will preach basically in that order, depending on the text. I, um, don't subscribe to that personally. Um, and what you said is, is very telling so that you said, you know, that, um, preach the law first and then the gospel so that people don't leave feeling depressed. I don't really subscribe to that, um, for a couple reasons. One, because that really only came about with that, that book, which is relatively recent in Lutheran history. So if you read Luther's sermons, if you read Walther's sermons, if you read, um, Johann Gerhard's sermons, like, there no one Lutherans prior to the 20th century aren't aren't preaching that way, so it's not really historically Lutheran. That's more of a minor reason. The more major reason is that that's not really what the Bible does, like when it preaches, right? So Paul, like when he ends his sermon in First Corinthians, he doesn't just like end on a happy note just so they don't leave depressed, right? Like he'll he's happy to end on uh, exhortation or something like that. Right, and Jesus similarly doesn't always end on the gospel. The third reason I don't really subscribe to that is um, that I don't find it very valuable to just have every sermon be purposefully emotionally manipulative. And I don't mean that in like a uh, a harsh way. I just mean that my goal when I preach is not to manipulate emotions. And to make sure that people feel good. My goal when I preach is that they learn the Bible better. And that um, the Bible changes them the way that the Bible is meant to. Which, if you look at the list that Paul gives for what the Bible is meant to do, it's meant to teach. It's meant to rebuke. It's uh, meant to correct and train in righteousness and to comfort. So do those things have emotional components? Absolutely. Right, and I get emotional when I preach sometimes, but um, 
the the end goal is not just a particular emotion. The end goal is to apply the text to the people, right? And so I, my whole thing is I preach the text, which is the major emphasis of uh, most Lutheran theology when they write about preaching is preach the text, preach the Bible, right? Um, don't preach a method, preach the Bible, right? So I use lots of different methods to structure my sermons, but my goal is always the same, which is to preach the text. So um, anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but... All right. Um, does that make sense, though, as far as the law of gospel stuff? So, yeah, unfortunately, there was kind of a generation of pastors that learned that gold malady means, and they were, that's just kind of what they did the whole time. So. But that explains why sometimes like, okay, it's supposed to leave happy, and, you know, that's not, you know. <laughs> it's okay. You're just like, okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's – uh, I think it's okay um, because – that like that this is this actually does relate back to the broader thing about justification and sanctification is that um, as our whole life is our whole life as Christians is part of the sanctification process um, it would not actually be helpful for us to only ever think about justification right to only ever think about how our sins are forgiven and how we're made right in God because there's growth to happen, right? And you can't grow like that. Paul makes this point in Hebrews. Um, by the way, we're going to do Hebrews for our Lent midweeks. So I was I was doing some reading in Hebrews recently, but Paul makes this point in Hebrews, right? That they're, the, Hebrew, the, the church that he writes to, um, they're very confused about the Old Testament, which is why he writes to them. But he makes this point in there where he says – that it's like they've been on spiritual milk for this is somewhere around chapter 10 I think they've been on spiritual milk but they they need to wean themselves off and get on to spiritual maturity right so it's like they're like it's it's fine like when we teach the children about Jesus right what do we focus on we focus on the basics, right? You're a poor sinner. Jesus died for you on the cross. He rose again from the dead to give you new life. You know, this is what baptism is. This is what the Lord's Supper basically is. Like we teach them the basics. Um, and a lot of that has to do with like their justification, right? That they're saved, that they're forgiven, right? Um, but as children grow older, right, and as we grow older as, as Christians, we should move on to be mature, right? Now, that doesn't mean, like, giving up on what you had, right? You still, like, like the initial growth and, like, what, what you started with was the basics, and that's good. We should always have the basics, right? Um, that never leaves us, but... As we grow more mature, like we should think more deeply, like take the fourth commandment, for instance, um, honor your father and your mother, mm-hmm. right? We should think more deeply about that as we get older than just like, well, I cleaned my room when my mom told me, you know, mm-hmm. like, 
we should think about what that means for our relationship with the government and what that means for our relationship with our boss at work and what that means for our relationship with our parents, even when we're older, right? Um, or what it means for our relationship with our children. You know, like it goes on and on and on. That's kind of that, di- that diving board thing I talked about, right? Um, that we don't just like s- stick with the, um, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've been forgiven the end. I can go home now and then just like zone out until next Sunday, right? Like we should be growing and thinking and and loving and um, being sanctified, right? So uh, that that's uh, I can't remember how I got on that, but uh, the the point is that this um, sanctification is about growth, right? And specifically growth in the love of God and the and the love of neighbor. Now let me um, point out a few things from this book, which I I think are good. Um, I was actually just going to teach from the book tonight, but I didn't do that. So, uh, <laughs> um, that was all from my own one ear out the other type of thing. So, uh, okay, let me let me catch up on the book here. So, um, I'm just going to make a couple points based on the kind of big titles here. So. Uh, first of all, it begins with Christ. That's what we were saying about, like, yes, it begins with justification, right? That it begins with knowing Christ and having him in your life, and then from there we grow, right? We we have to have that life in Christ. Like We have to have the new heart before sanctification begins, right? So justification comes first, and then sanctification follows. And a great verse for this is, of course, the favorite, favorite Lutheran verse, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Um for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right. So we are not saved by our works. But Paul doesn't stop there. We are his workmanship, right? created in his own image, created in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says, for good works, right? That which God prepared beforehand. So God actually prepared for us to be sanctified. He prepared for us to have the Holy Spirit and to grow in good works, right? To grow in the love of God and the love of neighbor. That we should walk in them, right? There's that language of walking or running again, right? That we that the life of sanctification is one of going somewhere, right? We're not stagnant. That's the kind of theme that we've seen throughout this is that we're, we're not just standing still in the same place the whole, our whole life, right? We're trying to actually increase in something, grow in something, right? We're... Going from one place to another. Okay. Um, then it goes into the section on faith bearing fruit. All right. So this is another theme of uh, that in the scriptures that you get of uh, what sanctification looks like. If you imagine yourself as a tree, you are a good tree because you're justified. But what do good trees do? They bear fruit, right? And what is that fruit? That fruit is the good works, right? And um, God wants us to bear good, good fruit, right? And if you John 15 is great, right? John 15, I love John 15. Um, someone told me, was it you, Jim? Is John 15 your favorite passage? Someone, okay. What? Yeah. But I know my sheep and my sheep. 
Oh, John 10. Okay. Someone was telling me John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. We're going to do that at the uh, April. Okay. Anyway, someone once told me that's their favorite passage. I don't remember who it was. Okay. Maybe it was me. It is one of my favorite passages. Oh, I like it. Told myself that. Uh, anyway, John 15. Um, I'm I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? So Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit, right? So again, we have to have this connection with the Spirit, this connection with Christ, and um, as that happens through our life, we grow in Him and we bear fruit, right? The fruit of good works. Um, and John 15 has a lot more very n- nice details in that metaphor that we could go into, but we won't do that. Okay. Then it's a section onto uh, what are good works and uh, the works of unbelievers. So first of all, um, there's a distinction that we have to make here. So first of all, in a theological sense, try and do this in five minutes. In a theological sense, good works are the fruit of faith, right? And good works are the acts of loving God and loving our neighbor. They're the act of fulfilling God's will for our lives. Those are good works, and they come from faith. Okay, That's what good works are, um, the fruit of faith. Right, And it, this, this idea of loving God and loving our neighbor, these are the good works right? which God prepared for us to do. Now, on a day-to-day level, you have to figure out what that looks like. Right, You have to figure out when you're going to pray. You have to figure out what Bible passages you're going to read. Right, You have to figure out um, that your boss at work needs to be loved in this way or that your daughter-in-law needs to be loved in this way. Right, Whatever the case may be. Um, that's, that's the life of sanctification is applying what God's word says about love to your life, right? About loving God and loving your neighbor. All right. So that's what good works are. Now, you might say, well, what about um, the when unbelievers do works, right? What about people who don't have faith, right? Yeah. So what about, um, I don't know, there was this, <laughs> this came up in a Bible class. I shouldn't probably say this, but it's been years now, so it doesn't matter. Um, this came up in a Bible class when I was in middle school at at the church we went to and I, I went to the adult I was going to the adult Bible class for some reason and um, I think I just got bored with the the youth one but um, that there was this huge fight because um, the the pastor said that good works are the fruit of faith or something like that and then someone said what about the firemen at 911? who pulled people out of the burning buildings, um, was that not a good work if that person was an unbeliever? And there was this huge fight. Like, everyone got really upset. And I'm, I'm glad I'm – like, y'all are great. <laughs> we've, never, we've never had a big blow-up fight in Bible study yet. So we're, I'm, I feel like I'm doing good. But um, there, there was just a lot of miscommunication, misunderstanding. But it's actually really simple, right? So um, there's – if we want to be a little more kind of theologically precise, we can talk about different kinds of righteousness, right? So um, one way to talk about that kind of law gospel type thing that we were talking about or justification, sanctification, another one of these kind of distinctions 
is um, that I think comes from Luther is the idea of passive righteousness. Shoot, I made my box too small. Versus active righteousness. And I'll describe this difference real quick first, and then we'll go on to the third thing. Um, so passive righteousness is, you can think of as justification. So this is that Jesus passively makes us righteous, right? Not anything we do in ourselves. We are made righteous because of justification. Active righteousness is when we ourselves are righteous in the sight of God. This is good works. This is sanctification. Does that make sense? Okay. There's a third category that Lutherans have used to describe the kind of when things that are good um, in an external way but are done outside of faith, and that's called civic righteousness. Civic righteousness. And I'm just going to say right, period, because I'm out of room. Okay, civic righteousness. And this is basically to describe um, what is externally good for society, right, that maybe even is in line with the Ten Commandments, but is not done out of faith per se, right? So um, it's so it's not a good work before God in heaven because there's not faith, right? So God does not consider um, in a theological sense, right? God does not consider um, something eternally good if it's not done in faith. Now, it is still good for society, right? So if you go back to the 9-11 example, firemen burning building, right? That's civically righteous. No one would say that's not good in an you know, external sense, right? In a worldly sense. But how does God consider that as far as um, is it a good work that he prepared beforehand? Um, potentially not if it's not done in faith, right? Because um, things are made uh, righteous before God by faith. And um, that's kind of a hard, difficult concept to wrap your minds around. And this is, you know, what caused that big fight. So just mm-hmm. if you don't understand it, don't fight me. Just... Um, <laughs> It really didn't make a difference. It it doesn't – no, it doesn't really make a difference in the lives of the people who are being pulled out of the building, right? Like – and that's kind of the point is to say that it is civically righteous in that it's – it is righteous in in that sense. Okay, right. so the farmer says, are you, do you believe and I'll know that he goes to find someone else? That would be bad. <laughs> then he goes yeah. – yeah, well, like the, the question is – does it have um, – will Jesus – so what it really comes down to is there's an accounting of works, right? So this is something else that Lutherans kind of don't like to talk about because ju- because we're so focused on justification. Um, but when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, there is an accounting of works, right? Now, what determines if you actually go to heaven or hell or not is faith. Right, and it's salvation by faith through through grace. But um, kind of going along with that Ephesians two, when we are saved by faith through grace, we carry out the good works that He's prepared for us beforehand, and God does count works, right? Like not 
to get in or out of heaven or into hell or out of, out of hell. So but I'll have a platinum, but, mega, platinum mansion versus someone else that has gold because I did better. <laughs> so this is something called this is something called the deg- uh, degrees of glory, which is actually. <laughs> Um, Degrees of glory is something we can talk about next week. We're out of time. Um, But Jesus does talk about that there will be higher degrees of glory um, in in heaven and higher and lower degrees of glory uh, based on on works, right? So, um, which I'm totally okay with. Like, I recognize there are some people... I know that are going to be at a higher degree of glory than I will. Like they're just better Christians than I am, right? And that's fine. I'm still going to be in eternal glory and happiness and and righteousness and bliss. I'm not gonna right. Know. I don't care. Right. I'm there. We're good. If you're there, that's what matters. Uh, <laughs> but but that this is actually a biblical concept that there are such things as degrees of glory and there is an accounting of works. So the, the whole question of civic righteousness is if that fireman never comes to faith in Jesus, when he gives his accounting of works before God in heaven, that work of pulling the people out of the burning rubble, while it was good on earth, will not count to get him into heaven. Okay. Right. So that's why it, it has to be done in faith to be counted towards active righteousness and not just civic righteousness. So again, these are these are deep theological concepts. I, um, I, I like, and this is actually kind of good, right? Because it's spiritual maturity, right? So we can we can handle a little bit more than just the simplistic. You're a sinner. Jesus died for you. We can go a little bit deeper, right? So um, I'll I'll pull up some of the scripture references for degrees of glory next time, yeah. and then yeah. You lost me at the diving board. Oh, okay. <laughs> I dove off the. No, it's like um, it's like it gives you a spot to jump out of, and then when there there's infinite possibilities of where you can swim. So like the you have a commandment, right? So um, the fourth commandment is not just about your obeying your parents when you're a little kid, right? The fourth commandment is about relationship with authority. And so you use that commandment to jump off and to think about how do I love people in relationships of authority instead of just thinking of it like pharisaically or very narrow-mindedly. So that's the idea of the diving board. So when you enter the water, this wave goes out and it goes to all these different things. Yeah, yeah, you can go different places, right? That's the idea, yeah. So the first commandment is to not die. Yeah. That's good. I like that. I like that. All right. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have prepared good works for us to do beforehand, and we pray that you would continue to sanctify us as Christians, continue to help us grow in the love of you and the love of our neighbors, and we pray that you'd continue to send us your Holy Spirit, that we would always uh, remember what Jesus has taught us, and uh, that we would always also remember our baptisms, remember our justification, remember that we are saved by grace alone. 
And we pray all this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.